Oh, I tell you what, it is so good to see you today. You're thinking, what in the world is going on with all this luggage? We're going on a big trip. We're starting a new journey. It's called a new sermon series, Forgiveness, Getting Rid of the Baggage. I tell you what, there's a lot of us carrying around baggage each and every day. I'm carrying a blue backpack. It's actually a very special backpack for me. This has been on about a dozen mission trips. It's been on 20 family vacations and trips, and it's gone all the way to Panama. It's gone to West Africa. Did some touring on my way home from Africa in Paris, and so it went there. Uh, let's see, it's been to the Dominican Republic, Brazil, Argentina, and a few trips to Mexico to see some doofunky named Jeff Carney. And uh, then it's had a lot of really good family trips. We've gone to the beach, we've gone to Indianapolis, uh, we've been to Disney a few times. It carries around a lot of things when we go to Disney, a lot of things that's not mine that it has to carry around while we go to Disney. It's been to Philadelphia, Indianapolis, it's been to Boston, uh, it's been to Orlando, it's been a lot of different places. It's a really special bag to me. But you know what? On all of those trips, I remember, not just once, but many times on those trips, the burden that the convenience of carrying the backpack became. You see, as I would carry this backpack, I remember in Panama. In Panama, we would throw the backpacks on. They had about three water bottles uh, so that as we would leave our home base and we would travel to another indigenous uh, place in the jungle, we would carry it. We would hike for about an hour in the sun, finally get to our destination, play some soccer. And I remember when I would take the backpack off, I was really sore, tired, and very sweaty. Then there was the trip to... uh, There was the trip to Togo, West Africa. See, when I took it to West Africa, I would get off the plane. I had all my important stuff in here. I met Jeremy Benbrooks at the airport. We were so excited to see each other. And I remember I even took it with me and didn't leave it in his truck in the big city. I took it with me to the very first restaurant we went to that night at 9.30 p.m. And we got some African pizza. It was kind of sort of delicious, but it was okay. But I remember when I took my backpack off, I didn't remember it was on, and I sat down in the chair, and I leaned back, and it was like, oh, whoa, I won't fit here very well. It became an obstruction to being able to sit down, and it became a distraction to me. And then there's the trips to Disney World with the girls, with Natalie, and we would go to Disney World, and this thing would carry jackets for the girls and a change of clothes in case something happened, who knows what. Then we would have snacks while we waited an hour in line. It would have iPads in case we got really bored. Backup batteries so my cell phone can take plenty of pictures. And by the end of the day, not only was I hot, sweaty, and tired, but I was actually pretty sore. And I was like, man, I got to get rid of this thing. I'm ready for Bailey to carry this backpack instead of me. Well, I say all of those details of my trips, not so that you can know where I've been and the fun that I've had, but The reality is is that you and I carry the backpack of unforgiveness and bitterness all too often. You see, forgiveness is essential. It's a necessity that God teaches us about, and he says we've got to do something about it. When we have an unforgiving heart and we harbor bitterness, it's as if we're carrying a weighted-down backpack on us. And so just like in Panama, when we try to go on an hour hike, it becomes very uh, burdensome and it's hot and sweaty. And, and then by the time we get there, we realize that our body is in bad shape because of the load we carried. Or then when I went to West Africa and I tried to sit down and it became kind of in the way an obstruction, so doesn't forgiveness and bitterness in our heart. It becomes an obstruction from us being able to function correctly and to fit into the niche that God has designed for us. And then just like my trips to Orlando, though I'm trying to have fun and enjoy it, I'm reminded all so often as I take this bag on and off from ride to ride and put it down so we can get something else. And then I put it back on so that I can have the responsibility of carrying it. And just like bitterness and an unforgiving spirit, 
We try to pretend that we remove it just long enough to find some relief, but then there we go throwing it back on because it's our weight that we want to carry. It's something that we keep close to ourselves because somebody else has harmed and hurt us. Now, today I'm not here to pretend like there's no hurts represented in this room because the truth and reality is, is that there is a lot of hurt in this room. Some of you have suffered through abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. Some of you have been endangered and embattered in relationships in your life. Some of you have stories to tell that would curl the, uh, the very necks on our back, just cause them to jump straight up. We would hate to hear the details of what you have gone through. Some of you have story after story, detail after detail of lives or experiences in life that you have lived, and you're holding on to something that is very difficult to let go. When we discover this topic of forgiveness, we're going to look at what Jesus teaches us throughout His Scriptures, throughout God's Word. We're going to find some important truths verse by verse that are very applicable to us and find the importance that God lays on this very topic of forgiveness. In God's eyes, forgiveness is not an option. It's a necessity. It's something that has to be happening. So I want to invite you to take your Bible with me to Matthew chapter number 6 this morning. Matthew chapter number 6 is where we're going to go together. And I'm always excited to dig into a, a new series. As we go together through a new series, we discover new truths or reminded of what God has taught us before. And we learn these together. And we're going to start in Matthew today. We're going to look at a very crucial part of this. And it's just two simple verses. Verse 14 and 15, Matthew 6. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. In verse number 12, in the middle of the Lord's prayer that he gives as an example, he says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This morning, I want to launch our new series, Forgiveness, Getting Rid of the Baggage, by looking at a very simple truth in Matthew 6, forgive and be forgiven. Forgive and be forgiven. Father, will you guide us this morning as we cover this very simple truth? Lord, we do not for one moment want to breeze through this or go over it in such a light manner pretending like, come on, let's just all forgive and move on in life. Because the reality is, is we all have stories to tell and experiences we've lived. We have hurts and we have pains. We have memories that haunt us. And we have experiences that sometimes become major roadblocks and hurdles to overcoming to find victory and peace in our life. So God, I don't know the stories that sit in the pew today, but you do. And you know each and every circumstance. And so I'm asking you today to allow us to be challenged in this very thought of forgiveness. Allow us to be humbled in such a way that we would be open and eager to be challenged and changed in our spirit. So Lord, we give this time for you to do your work and that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Vengeance or forgiveness, which is more popular today? You'd probably say vengeance. Society is teaching us that retaliation is a healthy step in building a healthy self 
self-esteem. And so they say, you've got to stand up for yourself, fight back, retaliate, don't forgive, don't let people get away with it. You know, forgiveness is really not a very natural part of the human heart. Most conflicts and problems within relationships can be traced back to an unforgiving spirit. Conflict always rises because of pride, Proverbs tells that. But then when that pride has brewed long enough, there's an unforgiving spirit on one end or both ends. There's an unwillingness to find resolve to the issue. And really our enemies as individuals, our enemies become those who have harmed us the worst. Even Christians have a very difficult time finding forgiveness in their heart to give to somebody who has dared cross their path in such a detrimental way. I hope that none of us would have the attitude like King Louis XII of France did with his enemies. He said, nothing smells so sweet as the dead body of your enemy. Hmm. Now, some of you have been tempted to think that way. Nothing so sweet. People do tend to hold grudges. They brood over the offense. They plot revenge and they become bitter through the circumstance. Their refusal to forgive often stems from their emotions the emotions which have been attached to the very circumstance. And God puts it very clear in His Word that we must forgive in order to be forgiven. In this text, here in Matthew chapter 6, we've come right into the middle of a very important sermon that Jesus is speaking to the multitude of followers and to His disciples. And as he is speaking this sermon that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter number 6, he comes into this transition with his crowd and speaking about giving without hypocrisy, praying without hypocrisy, and then in verses 9 through 15, he gives this example of what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And at the end of this prayer, in verse number 13, he ends that this glory forever, amen. And at the end of this prayer, he gives this addendum in verse 14 and 15. It's, a, it's an explanation of the request for God's forgiveness back in verse number 12. Now, what I find so fascinating about this is a very interesting priority that God or Jesus is placing on forgiveness. Because it is the only petition and request of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus is going to give additional insight and additional information. And so I would say, therefore, the importance of forgiveness is intensified here in this passage because after the example of the Lord's Prayer, he says, as the kind of concluding point, an addendum, let me go back and explain the importance and priority of this. And so here in the passage of Scripture in verse number 14, I believe we see the blessing of forgiveness. The blessing of forgiveness, no doubt, is one that we all like to receive. We all like to be forgiven. If we've ever crossed somebody and we've goofed and messed up, we want to say we're sorry, we want to be forgiven, we want to move past it, and we don't want it to be something that is held over our head for a long time. And then even some may pretend that they don't need forgiveness or that they don't want forgiveness, but the reality is, is we all enjoy forgiveness. Some people say, well, you know, I just don't offer my forgiveness to other people so loosely because I don't have to ask for forgiveness from a lot of people. The pride stirs in the heart of the one who would say such a statement. But they would say, I'm a pretty likable individual. I don't really cross people. And if I do, if I wrong them, they, they, uh, they think that I'm charming enough that they easily forgive me and we move past it so quickly. But Jesus is going to put a priority here. And he says the priority is reconciliation. 
Jesus explains what he spoke in verse number 12, and he says this priority of confession to God for sin that is in our life. This repentance in the prayer to God, he gives a very notable view of sin, and the listener quickly understands that this sin that he is speaking about in verse number 12 is an offense against God. Now, he is going to take a transition to talk about the offense against God and help the listener and the reader today to see not only offense against God, but the offense against each other. So the reconciliation is very important. But the offense that we have against God demands compensation. There has to be some type of compensation for the sin, that which we have done wrong. It's as if the debtor in the creditor's hands, so is the sinner in God's hands. Now, the truth of the sin debt is that this has come up before in his sermon. If you look in Matthew 5, verses 23 through 26, he addresses some very similar thoughts about this confession and this forgiveness. Now, we're very familiar with verse 23 and 24. We teach often about it, or we read often about it, or we quote often about it. We're very familiar with the thought of reconciliation with your brother. Don't bring your gift to the altar. Don't serve. Don't worship until there is reconciliation with somebody that you know you have some quarrel against, some offense that is there. And so we've dealt often with 23 and 24. But he continues in verse 25 with some teaching because... In verse 25, Jesus gives a warning to make friends with our opponent quickly so as not to be sentenced and have the imprisonment come. Now, the illustration that Jesus is using is one of a common practice from his day. And the common practice of his day would have been that when there was a debt that was unpaid and unable to be paid, then they would be thrown into the debtor's prison. Now, once thrown into the debtor's prison, consequences are happening So this is a dire place. This is a place that Jesus is warning from us going to. And he is not talking about our financial debts, but he's talking about the debts against one another, that which is an offense of sin to each other that needs to be reconciled. So when he teaches of this debt of any sort against us, he says that we need to make it good as soon as possible, definitely before it's too late so that we're not in prison. Now remember that thought that Jesus is teaching. Because Jesus is going to address it later on in Matthew 18 with a very familiar parable of the unforgiving debtor and the imprisonment. And we're also going to look at that thought of imprisonment because we know that sometimes in our own hearts we have an imprisonment of other people that have wronged us. And we throw them into the debtor's prison and we throw away the key with no hope or any thought of ever releasing them from that bondage in our heart. So when Jesus brings this reconciliation to, to the forefront, he is going to teach his listeners some very important truths, that this reconciliation has to happen now, not tomorrow, not next week, not when it's more convenient, but the reconciliation must happen immediately. It is something of importance and something we have to address John MacArthur said, as long as there is internal sin, outward acts of worship are never acceptable to God. Reconciliation must precede worship. Now, that's very important, and sometimes we'll even take time before worship service to just allow us collectively together to be still, to reflect on our own heart before God, and take the time to repent. Because reconciliation before God has to happen before worship. 
And reconciliation between man needs to happen before worship. Now, reconciliation before God, that's a given to all of us. We can grab a hold of that and we can say, yes, I can sit in the comfort of my seat and between me and God all alone, I can address the issues and I can handle them. I can confess them. I'll take ownership. I'll ask God to forgive and I can handle and deal with that. But then when we begin to branch it even further to what Jesus taught with the reconciliation of one another, that's where things start to get a little uncomfortable. And that's where we think, well, it's going to be okay because God really knows my heart and I can sing the songs and I can offer my gift and I, can, and I can do that of worship to Him because He really knows my heart. And He knows the pain that I've battled through and He knows all that I've gone through. And so for me to make things right with that individual, I mean, case in point, they've never even apologized. So why should I take the time to release them from the debtor's prison in my heart? Or why should I have conversation with them? I mean, the last thing I want to do is have a face-to-face conversation with them. The last thing I really want to do is offer them forgiveness. God knows my heart and knows my story, so I'll worship Him and everything will be fine. But Jesus is teaching us very clearly that before we worship, before we give, before we serve, that reconciliation must happen. It must proceed all of that. Now, every Jew that would have been listening understood that known sin in their life caused a breach in their relationship with God. Their ancestors would have done sacrifices and given offerings so that they could find that reconciliation, that restoration, and that forgiveness. The, the known sin in their life they would deal with and they would offer these sacrifices. But in Jesus' day, the Jews had taken a rabbi tradition and a misinterpretation of the Old Testament, and now they did not see the importance of addressing inward sins or sins that were unknown or unseen. And so if you didn't know what wickedness I had done this week, it was okay. I don't have to deal with it. It's not a breach in my relationship with God. Now, Jesus is going to quickly address that with the Jews of his day, because he's going to begin now to speak about hatred toward people. So he clearly addresses the hatred towards your brothers, hatred towards other people. He addresses very clearly of how we would call them of a fool and and gives us the warning there. Then Jesus is going to say, even within your own heart that nobody talks about, the lust of the eyes toward a woman is as if committing adultery in your heart. And then he addresses the issue of thoughts toward divorce. Then he addresses issues of giving oaths or retaliation or hypocrisy. So now he's going to help those who are listening to him to realize that it's not just the outward sins that are seen by everybody that breaches your relationship with God. It's also the inward sins, the inward struggles. And we think about that in our own life. And we think, well, this doesn't harm anybody else. But the reality is it's put a barrier between you and God, the known sin in your life that has to be dealt with, that which must be confessed. And the list here goes on. Now, some of us have retaliation in our heart, and though we may not walk up to somebody and punch them in the left jaw because we're afraid that the cops will come and haul us off and give us questioning and and prints on the paper with our thumbs, yet in our own heart, we just hate them so much. And again, I'm not going to pretend like your story is easy to bypass because you have stories that have caused great deep hurt. But if you have the retaliation in your heart and hatred in your heart, God is addressing that. Jesus says that is sin that has to be dealt with. That's the baggage that you're trying to carry. 
It's the heavy load that you try to sit down on the, on the subway with your backpack and lean back, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I've got this big bulky backpack. So now I've got to take it off, put it at my feet, put it through my legs so nobody walks by and runs off with it. And it becomes this burdensome to you. And you're not able to function in a normal Christian life because you've got this backpack of unforgiveness and bitterness that you're carrying. So God's first priority is reconciliation. And then he moves and talks about this reward by forgiveness. And so God's purpose for us to forgive. It's simple. Forgiveness results in forgiveness. It doesn't get any simpler than that. So this topic of forgiving others comes a couple more times in his teaching. Luke chapter number 7 in the, the parable of the creditor and the two debtors. And then again in Matthew chapter 18, it's the parable of the unmerciful debtor. And Jesus is going to reiterate this point. He's already addressed it twice in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to make this a very purposeful conversation. The point he is making is not so much that forgiving is a prerequisite for us to be forgiven, but that for us to expect any ounce of forgiveness from the Heavenly Father, we have to have a forgiving spirit toward others. So it's not that as if I can say, okay, God, on my checklist today is to forgive so-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. And once I get that, then I'm, I'm coming back, and I'm going to hold you to your word. You're going to forgive me. It's not the prerequisite or step-by-step -step plan. It's just the very fact that for God to grant us his forgiveness, it comes out of a spirit is so willing to forgive others who have wronged us. And in comparison, when we look at what we did to nail Jesus Christ to a cross, and when we look at the decisions that we make on a day-to-day -day basis, instead of showing love and loyalty to our Savior, we show love and loyalty to our flesh. When we look at who we really are through the eye lenses of Jesus' grace instead of the prideful look that we want to give ourselves so often, when we, when we be able to see ourselves as who we really are, we realize that everybody around us deserves my grace and forgiveness as well. And so this purpose is for us to be rewarded with forgiveness. And like all gifts from God, it brings responsibility. That forgiveness must be passed on. To ask for forgiveness on any other basis would be true hypocrisy. Now, what is forgiveness? You think, well, okay, if I want to exercise this thought of forgiveness, what is it? Let me tell you what it's not. There's a few very important things that help us to realize that forgiveness is not an emotion. Forgiveness is not just this feeling. It's not our uh, 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 thought that, oh, this, this feels good. It feels right. It is time to forgive. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them while he was suspended on Calvary's cross. Do you think he had an emotion or a feeling of wanting to grant forgiveness? No, he didn't. He was physically tortured, spiritually tormented, and mentally tried, yet the Lord Jesus chose to give forgiveness. Stephen, the first martyr recorded in the book of Acts, he had just finished preaching the gospel. He had shared his story, his testimony of life change, and the people didn't like it. And the spiritual leaders took him out of the city limits and stoned him to death. And while he was being stoned, Stephen prayed and asked God to forgive his murderers and not to lay that sin to their charge. That's pretty incredible. And you say, well, if I get to the point in my life where I know I'm about to take my last breath and I'm going to die, then I'll grant everybody forgiveness that needs it at that point. But yet you've lived a crippled life because you've carried this backpack heavy laden with bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness. Secondly, forgiveness is not forgetting. 
Some of you say, well, I forgive all the time because I just can't really remember what people have done or said to me. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning. So the phrase says, to forgive is to forget. And some of you have heard the statement, if you don't forget, you really didn't forgive. But do you really think that's true? I don't believe it is. I believe it's absurd. I believe this is terrible counsel that sometimes is given. It is humanly impossible to blot out unwanted memories at will. They haunt you at night. You wake up with the memory coming flooding your mind. You drive down the highway and something triggers you that you remember. Sometimes it's the scene or a smell that triggers the hurt that you're harboring. And so forgiveness is not just forgetting it. Now, God, He's the only one who can willingly remember no more. Jeremiah 31, 34, For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It is a choice that He makes not to hold it to our account. He chooses to not remember. Now, we've all had things happen to us that we just will never forget. They cannot be forgotten. But unfortunately... Or fortunately, thankfully, that has nothing to do with forgiveness. Sometimes even the devil uses that as a burden in our heart because then as we have a memory and the hurt starts to come back, we think, maybe I really didn't forgive them. I'm such a horrible person. I really tried to forgive them and I wanted to move past it, but every time I drive by such and such, I'm always hurt and reminded by what they said or what they did to me. And all of a sudden the things flash back and you begin to remember and relive them. And then you carry this burden that says, maybe I didn't really forgive them. Well, be rest, rest assured, forgiveness is not forgetting. And forgiveness is not shrugging off the offense. Some personalities, they just don't let things bother them. They let it slide. They brush it under the rug. They sit in a very neutral position. Forgiveness is more than doing nothing. Forgiveness is not just saying, eh, no big deal. That's their loss. That's their problem. You know, I thought that in, in, in pastoring, I thought, and again, I'm young in pastoring. I've only been at it, what, two and a half, three years as a lead pastor. And I kind of always thought coming into it, it's like, well, you know, I just choose not to think about that. I'm not going to really, really think much about what they said or what they did or, or their thoughts toward me. And you think, well, that's no big deal. But then when I realized some of the things that people said that were kind of intended to be slanderous and hurtful, I was sitting there on the couch the other day taking like a 10-minute nap on my day off in the morning waiting for some things to happen, and as I dozed off, I woke up suddenly to the thought of what people were saying and how I wanted to respond to them. And I thought, whoa, where did that come from? So I got the phone, and I gave them a piece of my mind. No, I didn't. I didn't do that. You're like, it wasn't me because I didn't get a phone call. No, it wasn't that. And then I got to thinking as I took a walk uh, later, I think it was later that night, and began to pray over this series. I look at my life, and I really haven't had the tragic stories. I'm sure I've had... I've had hurtful things said to me. I've had hurtful things done to me, just like the rest of us. But my stories aren't overly tarnished. They don't have a lot of holes and blemishes. They don't have a lot of bumps and bruises. And as I was walking, I was thinking, God, how do I, how do I connect then with, with people who are hurting, people who have devastating stories to tell, people who are harboring hurt? How do I connect with that? And then I began to realize that though I probably try too often to fit into this, like, eh, that's just church people. Oh, that's just... People who live in discon, you know, being discontent or contentious, that's just who they are. But when I get to that point where I realize that I have to forgive in my own heart, 
giving them over to the Lord and allowing God to deal in their life. I can make a choice to say, I will forgive and not allow them to throw me into a debtor's prison. And so forgiveness is not just shrugging off the offense. Forgiveness is not asking God to forgive you for being hurt or angry. That's not forgiveness. You're going to be hurt. You're probably going to be angry. And you're going to go through a lot of emotions. The phone call that comes through and the words that are said on the other line, they can cause pain and anger. Driving by a place that holds a special memory and yet that person stabbed you in the back and turned their life against you and that can harbor some feelings of anger and hurt. And then we realize that and we have to deal with that and we come before God and say, God, I'm sorry that I responded in such a way. I'm sorry that I lashed out or I'm sorry that I sent that text message without praying and thinking about it. I'm I'm sorry that I made that phone call. I'm sorry that I left that voicemail. I'm sorry that I gave that stare. I'm sorry that as I laid in bed at night, I wish they would just, okay, I'm not going to say it out loud, but I'm just sorry that I thought that about them. And all of a sudden we think, okay, I feel much better because I have asked God to forgive me for being hurt or angry. But that, again, is not forgiveness. And forgiveness is not asking God to forgive that person who hurt you, although that is a very noble thing and a very healthy step in forgiveness, asking God to forgive that person. But the reality is, is that person is on their own. Jesus and Stephen, though praying that the Father would forgive them, for they know not what they do, forgiveness did not come to those men because they never cried out for their own self, taking ownership for what they have done. So let's not be the ones to think that we can go to the graveside and ask for forgiveness for somebody and hope that repentance or forgiveness will come from God to that individual. Let's not pray over our children at night asking God to forgive them, thinking that all is going to be smooth and sailing because I have interceded on their behalf. It's a noble thing to do, and it's a very good thing to do of prayer towards individuals in your life who have hurt you. But it does not bring them forgiveness, nor does it say that you have truly forgiven them. A noble step and a very healthy step indeed. But forgiveness is not asking God to forgive the person who hurt you. And forgiveness is not rationalizing or understanding why the person acted towards you as they did. Well, they just had a bad day, so they really had a good reason to do that. Or I nagged them, or I said too much, or I did this, and they probably retaliated if I had just been more gentle with my words, or hadn't called them, or bothered them, or texted them, or if I had done more activity or more function, or if I had done this, then they would not have responded in that way. By the way, as a pastor, your mind starts to rattle very quickly like that. If I hadn't done this, if I hadn't dressed that way, if I hadn't done this, if I hadn't acted that way, if I hadn't said this, and all of a sudden our mind begins to flood with things that we begin to say, if I hadn't pushed them to the edge, then they they probably wouldn't have responded that way. And the truth is, is that forgiveness has to come in such a different form. It's not understanding why they acted out toward you in the way that they did. Because why they did what they did is really irrelevant. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a choice. Jesus made a choice there on Calvary's cross to ask God to forgive them and to forgive them personally. Stephen made a choice as he was being stoned to death to pray for God to forgive them and not hold this murder to their account. And he had to make a choice that he, Stephen, would forgive them. And so this is a choice. It's a decisive act of the will, and it can be done with God's help. That's a key statement. It can be done with God's help. 
There's a book that's been written. It's a, it's, it shows us that the secular world has narrowed it down to this as well, that forgiveness is a choice. Because Dr. Robert Enright, he wrote the book entitled, Forgiveness is a Choice, subtitle, A Step-by-Step Process for Resolving Anger and Restoring Hope. So the overview of the book, it states this. Let me read it. Forgiveness is a Choice is a self-help book for people who have been deeply hurt by another and caught in a vortex of anger, depression, and resentment. Some of you are like, ooh, Amazon, do they have it? Now don't veer away from your scriptures or your notes, all right? Because then it continues. As a creator of the first scientifically proven forgiveness program in the country, Robert Enright shows how forgiveness can reduce anxiety and depression while increasing self-esteem and hopefulness towards one's future. The groundbreaking work demonstrates how forgiveness approached in the correct manner benefits the forgiver far more than the forgiven. Filled with wisdom and warm encouragement, the book leads the reader on a path that will bring clarity and peace. Enright is careful to distinguish forgiveness from pseudo-forgiveness, meaning not genuine, and to reassure readers that forgiveness does not mean accepting continued abuse or even reconciling with the offender. Rather, by giving the gift of forgiveness, readers are encouraged to confront and let go of their pain in order to regain their lives. Now, that was a lot of good fluff and hogwash, and some of you are like, that sounds pretty good. I mean, if I saw that in the self-help section at Books A Million, I think I'd grab two. But here's the reality. I'm sorry, Dr. Enright, but you are not the creator of the forgiveness program. You do not have groundbreaking work. 2,000 years ago, a man by the name of Jesus spoke the master plan into place on how to forgive. And Jesus spoke the master plan, and he taught it, and he lived it. So that today, he can expect us to do the very same thing. Not with a 10-step process from Dr. Enright, but with God's holy living word that is powerful and brings us to that place where we too can choose to forgive. So in verse number 15, he jumps from this blessing of forgiveness and he ends it with a warning of the burden of unforgiveness. Jesus hits them with a reality check. Because as listeners, they were hearing everything he was saying and thinking, that's fine, I can forgive. But then he says, if you choose not to forgive, it's not that you've just kind of done a little problem. You will not be forgiven by God. So if you're not willing to forgive others, you won't be forgiven. And Jesus spoke in depth on this in Matthew 18 with his parable, and he taught it. And remember, we referenced that debtor's prison. Here's what happens we would walk away, or the listeners would walk away from Matthew 18's parable with a complete understanding of the dangers of the debtor's prison. And we, too, put others in that prison. We put people, when I woke up on Thursday morning out of a nice little nap and thought of this individual and the things I wanted to say and things I wanted to respond with, I had placed them in a debtor's prison undeservingly. You see, we put those who offend us in this debtor's prison because they owe us and they will repay and they will make it better. And if they choose not to make it better, they will remain there. And I will revisit that sometime and I'll throw a little food to it. But in all actuality, all we're doing with the debtor's prison is choosing to carry the heavy weights of our backpack of bitterness and unforgiveness. And we've gotten to a point where we don't care 
We don't care that it's distracting to our life. We don't care that it's burdensome. We just enjoy the very fact that we can take it off for a second and complain that we're sore and tired. And we think that everybody else is going to benefit from this because now I know who to keep at a distance. Get away, get away, this is my backpack. Well, if you just let me take it off and you can be relieved from the pain. No, no, I will carry this until the day I die. Well, why? Because they hurt me. If you heard my story, you would know that this backpack is something that I have to carry. You know what? I don't even have to explain it to you. You'll never understand. And you walk around with your heavy backpack and you think that it's all going to be fine because that's just the burden that God's called you to bear. But it's not because he says, forgive and be forgiven. The blessing is forgiveness. The burden comes with unforgiveness. So we keep them there. And we have every intention of leaving them there. But then you know what happens is sometimes we put ourselves in that same prison cell. We put ourselves in that prison. We're only willing to forgive if they repent. You say, well, what if they don't repent? We'll come to that in the series. We're going to come to that place with what if they don't say they're sorry? Am I free from forgiving? No. We scheme our revenge, we lose sleep, we change our spirit, we change our personality, we have broken relationships, we have a bitter heart, we spew out slander and contention, we're, we're captured in these bonds of bitterness and anger, and we put ourselves in the debtor's prison. Have you ever known somebody that's trying to live life in a debtor's prison because they just can't forgive other people in their life? I want to conclude with a story from a book that I just finished last week. I told you about the biography of Richard and Sabina Wormbrand. The Wormbrand were Jews living in Romania during World War II era. Now, there's some devastating things that happened with Richard and Sabina. When you read their book, it's the biography. I, I haven't written a, or I haven't read a biography in years, but I was just so encaptured by it, and I just kept reading page after page after page. And here's a man and a woman who were atheists, rejected God, but when they saw God's forgiveness given to them, their lives were transformed. As young Jews, they trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They started a family, and as a Jewish couple living in Romania during World War II, it was not the place to be. As Richard would preach the gospel, he was, after this story, years later, he was thrown into prison. He was in prison for 14 years. And this was not our modern-day prisons by any means. The stories that could be told about the prisons that they had and what they would do in torturing these Christians for preaching and teaching and living out the gospel, it will just turn your stomach. I, I told the group, I don't remember if this was the group, I told you I would read it at night and I'd have to just close it up, go to sleep, and I'd wake up with nightmares remembering all the things that they had gone through. So that's Richard and Sabina. So let me tell you a little bit about what happened before their imprisonment. Now I'm going to read a few of these pages and I will do my best to keep you encaptured by the text. World War II offered ample opportunities to forgive those who were harmed. When Romania first entered the war, tens of thousands of Jews had been killed or deported. And in the city of Iasi alone, 11,000 people were slaughtered in a single day. Because Richard and Sabina lived in Bucharest in 1939, their lives were spared. But Sabina's Jewish parents... Her three sisters and her young brother and other relatives who lived in Bukovina, they were rounded up and sent to Transnistria, a desolate border province annexed by Russia. 
In a sweeping genocide, every member of Sabina's family was murdered in Transnistria. When Richard broke the news to his wife, Sabina crumbled. Memories of her childhood rushed back into view. She would never see her mother and father again. She would never again embrace her sisters and her younger brother. How did they die? Who took their lives? Questions she wanted answers for. She clutched her chest with an uncontrollable sobs just flowing out of her. Well, not long after the news, Richard and Sabina were in their home and the Wormbrands, that's their last name, their landlord who lived upstairs, he was a, a devout Christian, he told Richard that there was a soldier staying at his house. The landlord said, I knew him before the war, but he has changed completely. He's become an absolute brute who boasts about how he volunteered to exterminate Jews in Transnistria. He brags about killing hundreds with his own bare hands. Richard thought to himself, Transnistria. As the chill came down his spine, he thought to himself, can it really be? Now, Richard said nothing to Sabina during dinner. As dinner was the landlord, Richard and Sabina, their young son, and this soldier who would already boast of killing of the Jews. And so after dinner, Sabina tucked her son into bed and she drifted to sleep. But Richard remained awake, tossing and turning, and his, his thoughts racing. God would not let him sleep, and so he crawled out of bed. Richard knocked upstairs on the door of the landlord's house. And as it opened, he saw a silhouette of a soldier just sitting, lounging in the living room. So as the landlord made introductions, he, uh, the soldier stood to his feet, towering over Richard. His name was Borilla. He was a battle-seasoned veteran who filled the room with an intimidating smell. Richard could almost smell the stench of blood still lingering on his clothes. He joined the two men, and Barilla began recounting his wartime experiences, bragging about slaughtering countless Jews. He even boasted of killing infants in their own parents' arms. Richard listened to his stories, wavering between feelings of rage and sorrow. Barilla stopped to sip from his glass. Richard said, It truly is a frightening story, but I'm not scared for the Jews. God will compensate them for what they have suffered. And then he looked squarely into the eyes of the soldier and he said, I'm anguished thinking about what will happen to their murderers when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Barilla leaped from his chair, a large vein pushing out of his neck. The landlord leaped from his seat as well, fearing what might happen. Richard and Barilla were both guests in his home. He certainly didn't want a brawl to happen. Barilla calmed himself and sat back down in the chair. As they finished their conversation, Richard had an idea to, to do something that would help break down barriers with Barilla. In the conversation, they learned that Barilla enjoyed music. And so, though his family was asleep, Richard welcomed the two men, the landlord, the soldier, into his home and softly played the songs that Barilla loved. The soldier's eyes welled up. His face began to turn red. It didn't take long for Richard to exhaust his repertoire. His, he slid his hands off of the piano keys and he faced the murderer and he said, I have something very important to tell you. Barilla wiped his eyes away, his tears away, and he said, well, go on. If you were to look through that curtain, Richard said, gesturing toward the wall, you'd see that someone's asleep in the next room. It's my wife, Sabina. 
Her parents, her sisters, and her 12-year-old brother were killed with the rest of her family. The soldier glanced at the curtained room. You told me that you killed hundreds of Jews near Golta. Barilla nodded. That's where they were taken. You yourself don't know who you've shot, so we can assume that you're the man who murdered her family. Barilla jumped up from his chair. Richard held up his hand. Wait, wait. I want to try something. Let's do an experiment. I'm going to wake up my wife and tell her who you are and what you've done. And I can tell you exactly what will happen. Barilla looked at the pastor with bewilderment. My wife won't speak one word of reproach to you, Richard assured him. In fact, she'll hug you like you're her brother, and she'll bring you the best supper she can find in this house. Perilla clearly didn't believe him. If he had murdered her family, she would most certainly demand his blood. Richard continued, so if Sabina, who's a sinner like all of us, can forgive and love like this, imagine how Jesus, who is perfect love, can forgive and love you. If you turn to him, everything you've done will be forgiven. Barilla's hardened exterior crumbled. Confronted with guilt and forgiveness, the killer clutched his shirt with both hands and he ripped it apart saying, Oh God, what do I do? What do I do? Barilla cradled his head in his hands and he sobbed, I'm a murderer. I am soaked in blood. What shall I do? Richard declared in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved. Barilla began to tremble as the two men prayed together out loud. Over and over, Barilla asked God to forgive him, to relieve his conscience from his crimes. When Barilla had exhausted himself in prayer, Richard said to him, I promised you an experiment and I'm going to keep my word. He drew back the doorway curtain and he slipped into Sabina's room. Honey, there's a man here I want you to meet, he whispered. She rubbed her eyes and she sat up. I believe he's the man who murdered your family, but he's repented and now he's our brother in Christ. Sabina wrapped herself in a robe. She sat silence for a few minutes and then she went out to greet her family's murderer. Barilla was surprised when Sabina embraced him. The two held each other. They wept together, kissing each other's cheeks again and again. Richard knew his wife's heart. If God could forgive her for the crimes in her own past, she could forgive Barilla. If God could cleanse her conscience from all the people she hurt, then all the strangers she cheated, all the damage she inflicted, then God surely could do the same for Barilla. Then just as Richard predicted, Sabina went into the kitchen to prepare the soldier a meal. As Sabina worked in the kitchen, Richard went into the next room to retrieve their two-year-old son. He brought Mihai, still asleep in his arms, into the living room to show his guest. It had only been a few hours since Barilla had boasted of killing Jewish children in their parents' arms. Do you see how quietly he sleeps? Richard asks. You're also like a newborn child who can rest in your father's arms. The blood that Jesus shed has cleansed you. Over time, Barilla had become one of the worm brand's closest friends. As Richard later reflected, the only two men Sabina ever kissed after her marriage were her husband and the man who murdered her family. A woman who knew what it was like to forgive and to be forgiven. What's your story? What's the hurt and the pain? 
And how big is your backpack you're carrying today? Would you take off the backpack? Would you throw it at the feet of Jesus? And will you forgive so that you too can be forgiven? Father, I thank you for those who have gone before us. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who taught and exemplified forgiveness. I thank you for the martyrs of old who have lived a life of forgiveness. I thank you for a Richard and Sabina Wormbrand that we can recount their story some 70 years later and be reminded what true forgiveness looks like. So God, today, as we sit here in 2018, we live in the comforts of our life and we think that if we can just shrug off enough and maintain our life, we're going to be fine. Yeah, I'm carrying hurt and pain, resentment and bitterness, but the truth is, is I can, I can sustain it. I can balance it. I'll work through it. But may we be freed from it today. May we come to grips with that reality and find you to release us from it. So God, work in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen.